This podcast was produced on Sunday, September 3rd at 11.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Now, if secularism is actually used as a screen for, say, uh, racism or Islamophobia, that needs to be condemned. If it's done in a respectful way, if it's done especially res respecting a consensus in Quebec society, then that's Quebec's decision to, do, to, to be doing so. Quebec MP and leadership candidate Guy Caron suggesting his party shouldn't interfere in Quebec's efforts at secularization. At issue is Bill 62, proposed legislation that prevents women who wear the niqab or the burqa from providing or accessing government services. Caron argues that if the NDP is serious about treating Quebec on a nation-to-nation -nation basis, then Ottawa should butt out of its religious accommodation debate. That discussion touched off some fiery exchanges between the candidates last week. I personally don't believe politicians, I don't trust politicians to tell women how to dress. We also do not accept, uh, uh, do not support legislation that is in contravention of the Charter and Rights and Freedoms. Uh, and I am concerned by uh, a number of the comments that verge on Quebec bashing. I think that it's really important to underline the importance of having a separation between church or religion and state. It's something that protects everybody, me included. On the other hand, though, it's absolutely clear that uh, 60, Law 62, as it's proposed, contravenes the Quebec Charter of Human Rights and Freedoms. And that's why it's something I cannot support. For me, it was crucial to demonstrate that a leader has to work to try to conciliate those two notions rather than, uh, than, than hiding our, our head in the sand. I'm Althea Raj, and this is Follow Up, a HuffPost Canada politics podcast. There are four candidates vying to replace Thomas Mulcair as NDP leader, Ontario MP Charlie Angus, Manitoba MP Nikki Ashton, Ontario MPP Jagmeet Singh, and of course, Caron. While the NDP race hasn't gotten much national media attention, the contest chugs along. Three debates were held this summer in Saskatoon, Victoria and Montreal, and a final one is set for Sunday in Vancouver. And before voting begins on September 18th, the leadership hopefuls will make their final pleas through a candidate showcase in Hamilton. Why are we still stuck in a time period where people declare uh, their gender? We have the same members all across the country, but we don't talk. Uh, a situation like the one on Kinder, Kinder Morgan was foreseeable. We should have been able to talk this through before it, it degenerated to what it was. And much of the work that the CCF did talked openly about a socialist vision of our country, talked openly about the need for to put people before profit. And that is a vision that I think we need to get back to in a bigger way. It is a brilliant manifesto, but we have not formed a federal government. And that's the task before us. Simple. Here at HuffPost Canada, we will be giving you a chance to hear from the candidates firsthand. We're hosting a live debate on September 27th. We promise to have a few surprises. You can watch it live on Facebook, and of course, we'll replay all of it right here in a future episode. But for now, we kick off the first of our profile interviews. In this episode, meet Guy Caron.
bien sûr. Very happy to be here uh, for a profile interview. Um, love those because we'll be talking about light stuff. Caron, thank you very much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. I wanted to ask you maybe if you could start off by giving us the sort of 60-second pitch of who is Guy Caron <laughs> for the people who might be listening to this podcast and think, I've never heard this name before. <laughs> well, I've been a member of parliament for Rimouski Nejet Timiskwata Les Basque, which is not the longest writing name, but close. Uh, Rimouski is in eastern Quebec. That's where I grew up. Um, I studied at the University of Ottawa in communications. I got a master's in economics at um, at the UCAM, Université du Québec à Montréal. And I got experience in student politics, which led me into economics uh, with the Council of Canadians, which is a civil society organization, and with the Communications, Energy and Paper Workers uh, Union of Canada, uh, which is now UNIFOR, where I work as an economist before I got elected in 2011. So I got experience in the labor movement, the student movement, and civil society. Um, so I, And I worked uh, or spent half my life in urban right, urban settings and half my life in region, uh, regional or rural settings. Uh, and um, basically, I spent all my life uh, to ensure that Quebec progressives would work hand in hand with Canadian progressives. So this led me into politics, and I've been member of parliament for over six years now. You tried, if I uh, am remembering this correctly, three times before you actually won a seat. Why did you want to enter elected office? Well, I initially, I never expected to become a member of parliament, but I became... Even when I was involved in student politics, I was not involved in partisan politics. I liked the NDP, but never was really a member. And that changed when friends of mine invited me to hear this guy speak in uh, July, midsummer day in 2002. And it was Jack Layton uh, giving a speech to launch his leadership bid to lead the NDP. I was there, and I joined on the spot, and I became a member. I helped Jack. Um, to get elected. And then after he was elected in 2003, I decided to go on and continue my involvement with the party, trying to develop the NDP in Eastern Quebec, which was actually not that easy to do, especially since uh, the election before I got involved, the NDP finished with one person in Rimouski, finishing even behind the natural uh, party, those who <laughs> wanted to solve problems with uh, yoga, <laughs> yoga and, and meditation. So basically that involvement, trying to develop the NDP in Eastern Quebec, led me to run in 2004, 2006, and 2008, when I had decent results, but never to lead me to think that I could eventually become member of parliament, and that happened with the orange wave in 2011. Now you're throwing your hat in the ring to mm -hmm. be leader of the party. Yeah. Um, why? I'm, I'm married since 2006. I've got kids who are eight and five. Dominic is eight and Edie is five. Incidentally, my wife told me two weeks after I got elected in 2011 that she was pregnant. So it was a very eventful month of May 2011. Um, but I'm looking at their future, and I'm looking at the future right now, which seems that they will be worse off than their generation themselves will be worse off than our generation. I really want to pursue Jack's legacy to ensure that we can can shift, we can restructure the economy, we can restructure the way the society is working. And this is what I'm doing through the ideas I'm bringing forth, but also, also remembering uh, where I came from and remembering where my kids will be going. You recently came out with a um, sort of Quebec strategy. Mm -hmm. Now you're the only candidate in the, in the race that is from Quebec. 
Is it your feeling that nobody else in the race can really grow the party's support in that province? Uh, I do believe that. I, I believe I'm in the best position to do so. Um, we have to remember the past. I mean, one of the reasons why I was never interested in joining the NDP before Jack came is even though the party was well-meaning and, and really shared the values that I, I actually had, uh, it really didn't have a Quebec strategy. We were outside on the national question, and we never really had a position that was attractive. Now we do, especially since Jack came in and he talked about Quebec, about the importance of if we want to seek government, we'll need to ensure that we will have member of parliaments from Quebec. We need to ensure that our discourse will be attractive to Quebecers. So I don't want to go back to the time we we were in before Jack. I want to ensure that that our message will still be attractive to Quebecers. You kind of had hinted at this during the first NDP debate when um, you made a, a slight reference to the niqab issue. But it really, I think, comes out clearly in your Quebec agenda where you say that it is imperative that the NDP um, and that you as NDP leader would respect the right of Quebec's National Assembly, its provincial legislative body, to um, decide whatever it wants on issues of secularism and identity. And as we all know, that is actually a debate gripping Quebec at the moment with Bill 62. But you also note that there are political parties, uh, Quebec Solidaire, Coalition Avenir Quebec, um, the Parti Québécois, who believe that people who wear religious symbols should not be allowed uh, to hold senior office in society. Or, or positions of authority. Do you, like judges and prosecutors mm -hmm, right. and police officers, you would be comfortable with Quebec going in that route if you were NDP leader? Well, let's just state, and I also mentioned that in my paper, that my personal belief is that the state has no right to actually dictate a man or a woman what to wear, for example. But the reality in Quebec is that because of that history of secularism coming out of the quiet revolution, and I'd I have experiences, I spoke to my grandparents before they passed about the reality that the church was controlling every aspect of society at the time. Like, it's, hard to, it's hard to fathom now, but that was the case before. And when we came out, and those were progressives who actually helped Quebec coming out of that time, uh, there, there was always a, a distrust of the mix between religion and the state, which is still currently there. Now, if secularism is actually used as a screen for, say, uh, racism or Islamophobia. That needs to be condemned. But there, are, there is a debate that's been happening in the last 10 years in Quebec with the Bouchard-Taylor Commission, for example, and right now with, uh, with Bill 62, that is something that comes out from, from Quebec's uh, distinctive path and historical path. If it's done in a respectful way, if it's done especially res respecting a consensus in Quebec society, then that's Quebec's decision to, do, to, to be doing so. I mean, if in the Chabert Declaration we are recognizing Quebec as a nation within Canada, those are not only words. So we need to actually implement that notion that it is a nation by allowing it to make those decisions or those... Uh, yeah, those decisions that are actually coming out of an historical experience. You don't think the current debate right now on Bill 62, with, which basically says that you cannot offer um, government services if you have your face covered and you cannot receive government services if you have your face covered, that that is a thin-veiled attempt at Islamophobia? I mean, who else is, 
who else is targeted by a rule like well, that? It's, it's not the only thing that is in Bill 62. And once again, this is coming out of a debate that's happening provincially. What I'm saying is that we have to recognize the right of the National Assembly to make decisions in this regard. I guess what confuses me with that is that you're basically saying the rights of Quebec to determine provincially um, what it wants, even if that means take taking rights away from certain individuals, that you're fine with that because you think that that right is more important than safeguarding the rights of individuals to wear whatever religious uh, garb or symbols that they would like to wear. I'm not making a judgment as to if it's right or not. What I'm saying is that if, we recognize, that if we recognize the rights of Quebecers... That you think Quebecers should be allowed... That the National Assembly should be allowed to make that right. Once again, it comes it comes down to the, the the principles of the Sherbrooke Declaration. If we are saying that Quebecers have a right for self-determination, if we recognize that Quebecers form a nation within Canada, that has a meaning that this discussion, this debate that's taking place in Quebec right now, belongs to the National Assembly, belongs to Quebecers. Um, one of your competitors in this race, Jagmeet Singh, uh, wears visible religious symbols. He wears a turban, obviously, and uh, he carries a ceremonial knife, a kirpan. Do you think it will be difficult for him, if he's elected leader, to have support in Quebec? Uh, listen, I'm, Jagmeet is actually a great, uh, great candidate in this race, and he is bringing a very... Uh, very important. Yeah, he's playing a very important role in bringing issues on the table. But you were saying that you, there's a general consensus in Quebec society that these religious symbols are should not be out in the open. So I'm asking you if you think that that would be an impediment for the NDP's growth in the province. Well, I don't believe it's the case. I do believe that he is bringing uh, his ideas, is bringing his personality, and he is. Um, he is um, a candidate with, uh, with strengths and weaknesses like we are. Let me talk about your economic agenda. Yeah. Um, you've put forward a lot of policy, actually, um, and some very bold policy on a number of fronts. Uh, basically, you envisage a really a complete uh, rejigging of the Canadian economy with climate change and its impacts, first and foremost. Um, Reading your policy documents, you say that you are calling for $90 billion of investments over 10 years uh, for things like renewable energy production and technology, um, retrofitting buildings, public transit, high-speed rail. Is this, this is just like a technical question, but is this $90 billion on top of what? Over and above what's being done right now. Okay. And how do you intend to pay for all of this? Well, that's an interesting question. Uh, you know, we're talking about $90 billion over 10 years, so it's $9 billion a year. Uh, with the, the interesting thing about my economic agenda, or my platform, basically, it's all uh, interrelated. Mm -hmm. So what you have right now is interrelated with the climate change platform, which I presented, and also interrelated with the tax reform platform. And with the tax reform platform, I actually uh, raised or suggest, suggested to raise about $30 billion in new revenues, not touching income taxes, not touching sales taxes or consumption taxes, mainly by going after unproductive capital, which is, uh, which is uh, what Thomas Piketty, for example, is, is recommending in uh, capital in the 21st century. So raising... I would say, raising, I would say you're taxing the rich. Uh, basically, You're yes. going hard after the rich with things that I'd never seen before, like wealth, $5 uh, wealth billion dollars on 
tax on the profits of financial institutions and bank executives and a 1% wealth tax on the top 10%. Which, which idea came from uh, this, uh, this highly left organization? That's a, world, that's a World Bank. The World Bank is suggesting a, a wealth tax, and that's marginal. So we're talking about 1% on the wealth of those who belong to the top 10% in wealth, excluding, by the way, first residence or a business or a farm. Same goes for uh, estate tax or inheritance tax, which would be for uh, the wealth that's transferred over $5, five million. Once again, excluding the first residence, farm, fishing operation, or a small business. And the corporations, we can't forget them. That's right, yes. And and currently, we are we, our corporate tax rate is so low right now that we're seen as a tax haven. <laughs> so there is some leeway that we have here. And I'm not talking about going out of our way to tax corporations. I'm talking about bringing it back to the level we were back in 2006, 2007, which is actually not that high. 19%. That's right. Eventually, we'll have to do away with what we have right now and restructure the whole tax system, to reform it, to modernize it. Because what you have to realize is that our tax system has been mostly developed in the mid-20th century, in the 50s and the 60s. That was before computers. It was before globalization. So... Uh, we are in a different world, but we have the same system, which explains why there's so many loopholes, why it's seeking like a leave, why it's so easy to send money in tax havens, offshore accounts, and so on and so on. We need to rethink the tax system, and that will be the step after we rebalanced it, which is actually necessary for in the first step. Um, well, let's talk about your climate change plan, because I think that's part of your... Uh, infrastructure investments as well. Um, and then we can come back and talk about basic income and uh, other things that you are suggesting. Um, on climate change and greenhouse gas emissions, you suggest basically going uh, deeper and faster than what the Liberals are suggesting with the carbon tax. Um, $50 a ton starting in 2020, going up to $150 a ton in 2030. But you also write that your carbon pricing plan will take into account provincial leadership. What do you mean by that? I mean that there, there is some provincial efforts being made right now. Quebec, for example, being in the, uh, the uh, Western Climate Initiative, and uh, so, which is a cap-and-trade system. And you have provinces like Alberta and British Columbia, which are uh, currently taxing carbon. So that effort has to be accounted for in the effort that we're doing federally as well. So much like what the Liberals have suggested? Yeah, I would say it's not different. It's just that, well, we need to go much deeper than what Liberals have, have done so far. And we, we have to do it because, I mean, we're seeing the problems that are arising. And for those, for those who believe that this would be too high, we have to look at countries like Sweden, which currently are aiming at the $130 a ton for carbon. I mean, it's we can talk about it. We can just pat ourselves on the back when we are going like slightly in the right direction or we can do what we need to do and we have to do it smartly i mean this is why we also i also presented in my uh, climate platform the issue of carbon tariffs when we're importing to ensure that our our uh, industry is not at a disadvantage and is not uh, is still competitive we we have to ensure that any goods that are imported are actually including a carbon tariff, like the cost, basically, of the carbon that, that's been used to produce those goods, the same way as we will be taxing our own goods. So we have to make sure that we're not going to be at a disadvantage. 
One of the issues that has caused a lot of um, controversy, maybe, uh, in some ways you're all pretty much saying the same thing, but <laughs> that has caused some debate during the NDP debates is the ideas of pipeline. And in your platform, you talk about revamping the National Energy Board process, and you talk about your opposition to Kinder Morgan and Keystone and Energy East. Um, do you envisage with a revamped NEB process as you outline the approval of any pipeline? Well, we'll see what it will look like. I mean, what, what the revamping or the reforming means is that currently the National Energy Board is a captured regulator. It does basically what the industry tells it to do. Right now, when you have hearings such as the ones for Energy East, where people want to speak, they want to, to appear at hearings, and you have over 90% of the people who want to appear who are rejected, they cannot actually speak to the, the commission. That's a problem. Uh, when we pay lip service to the idea of consulting with First Nations and ind indigenous people, when the process, the parallel, there should be a parallel process for them that, on, that not only looks at consulting with them, but seeking their consent according to the principles that are uh, set in the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People. When you're looking at the environmental assessment process, which is currently the responsibility of the environmental of the uh, the NEB, which has no expertise in it, when it should be the Department of Environment with the provincial departments of environment, the process should also be uh, more rigorous and should take and should take into consideration the impact on climate change. Let's do that first, and we sh we have to do it because. If we do it, that means we're in government. It also means that eventually we'll be followed by liberals and conservatives who have always been using the current process as a rubber stamp. So our responsibility as the NDP is to ensure that it will no longer just be a rubber stamp, that there will be a true process that will lead to a rigorous evaluation of those, those projects. Would you give indigenous groups uh, a veto over resource projects? Well... If it goes through their territory, of course. I mean, we're talking about nation-to-nation -nation relationship. That means that they are a nation. And the nation has a right to the same as Quebec. For example, when we're talking about self-determination, I do believe in those principles for First Nations as well. I want to ask you about your first piece of legislation. Yes. Um, you've said that it's not going to be about greening the economy. It's going to be about electoral reform. Mm -hmm. um, that your first act uh, to demonstrate that you're serious yes. is going to be a mixed member proportional system with regional lists. Mm -hmm. um, and that not only will this be your first piece of legislation, um, but you will also make it the bargaining chip mm -hmm. uh, for any potential coalition if the NDP doesn't have a majority of the yeah, seats. Support for a minority government, yes. Well, let me first ask you why you think uh, mixed member proportional with regionalists is the way to go and why you're suggesting to have a referendum two year, two election cycles after you implement this. Uh, and why do I make this my priority as well? It, it's it's really important to do so, first of all, because it's clear that if there if there is a high-profile promise that liberals have broken, it's this one. So if I'm a Canadian and I'm looking at this and say, well, I trusted the liberals to, to change our system and they haven't done, why should I believe the NDP? To ensure that 
people will believe us. You made you need to make a strong stance like this. Why mixed member proportional with the regional lists? That's because it's uh, the idea that as that is gathering the, the broader consensus. We could talk for 20 years, 30 years about the best system other than first past the post. And we will not reach unanimity. So we need to suggest one specific item or, or element or, or electoral system that will be gathering the largest consensus and this is it. And the idea of a referendum is the way that New Zealand went about it. They actually implemented the program and they did it for two elections and then they had the referendum asking, do you want to keep it or you want to go back to what you had before? If you have a referendum beforehand, the problem is that you're deciding bet between the devil you know and the devil you don't know. And people always choose the devil they know. <laughs> um, if you are going to have a referendum, those who are going to be, be voting against are those who want first pass opposed or those who don't want or are not part of the consensus about this, this program. Let's do it. Let's make people understand how the system can be different. And let's, let's do it twice. And then after that, they will have a choice between two levels that they will know. And it will be a lot easier for them to decide. Would you really be willing to work with a government that, or a political party that doesn't believe uh, that climate change poses the type of risk that you believe in, that isn't ready to move in the same direction as you are on um, basic income or social programs just to have electoral reform? I haven't said that this this would be the only condition. I just said that this will be an unavoidable condition. It doesn't mean that it will be the only condition to our support. So no. So so <laughs> there, there, will, there, there might be, depending on the government in place, other conditions that will be placed, but this one will be part of the package. your workers' agenda. Um, probably one of the uh, most headline-grabbing uh, suggestions has been the reduction in the work week. Yes. Um, you're calling for the workday to be reduced by an hour, seven hours, but no uh, less pay than what you're bringing home with eight hours mm -hmm. a day. You write that this would help mitigate the effects of automation. Mm -hmm. I am very confused by that. Explain <laughs> that to me, please. Well, uh I think there is a growing consensus that uh, in many sectors of society, you're seeing an increase, a massive increase of automation. And not only automation, the way that we see robots and physical physical uh, manif manifestation of, of like machines. Like machi industry. But ma yeah, machines replacing in manufacturing, for example. Artificial intelligence. That's right. And, and maybe your job will not be there in 10, 15 years as a journalist. Uh, so we need to we need to come to. You don't need to smile at that. <laughs> but we need to come to grips with this this possibility, right? And and not wait until it it like we're faced with 
this realization, we might very well be facing a future where there will be a lot less jobs than the people who are willing and ready to work. And people might be very qualified into those, those, those jobs. So we need to look at ways to, once again, transition towards that different f future. And the reduction in the work week or the work day is part of it. Basic income is another part of it. So basically, you think that that would spur employers to hire more people? I, I do believe that it will, if you are reducing with the same paid number of hours, you are ensuring that um, that the reduction in the labor that you're employing is will be less drastic than if you're just replacing it straight with automation. So by being able to minimize or decrease the, the speed at which the loss of jobs will be obvious in our society, you're ensuring that you're giving yourself more time to face that situation. Uh, you suggest that uh, individuals across the country, including permanent residents, who uh, live below the poverty line would get a basic income. What would that look like? It's basically a top-up over any labor income or support program income. For, and uh, the top-up would be up to the level at which, uh, at the low-income cutoff. So, for example, the low-income cutoff, the beauty of it is that it changes depending on the size of the community in which you live. For smaller communities, it would be, say, about $18,000 a year. For larger communities, talking about cities of over $500,000, we're talking about $25,000 a year. So, basically, if you work or if you have social assistance or any, any other type of, um, of income, but that's under what the low-income cutoff, you would get monthly payments the same way as you'd, you would under the Canada Child Benefit if you have kids or the same way as you would under the Guaranteed Income Supplement if you're a senior. Those are types of basic income that are targeted. Uh, so you would get monthly checks up to that level to ensure that no one will have to No one is living below the poverty for, line. That's right. And the low-income cutoff is measured to ensure that the basic needs are provided for, which is uh, food, lodging, and uh, food, lodging, and clothing. Statistics Canada tells me that's 4.7 million people. Yes, it's actually, we estimated it might be up to 6 million people, yes. And uh, that, that tells you that we need to tackle this problem. I mean, we have a wealth, uh, a wide variety of, of social programs that are supposed to be tackling poverty, and we still are not able to, to eliminate poverty. And poverty, in my mind, is not inevitable. And basic income is actually the fastest way for the federal, the federal government to tackle the issue of poverty. Um, you look at the pilot programs we've seen in the past, the most known is probably the Mincom experiment in Dauphin. Obviously, basic income will help the people who will be receiving it, but it will also help their communities. We've seen when it was applied, the impact it had on the community, the re reduction in the crime rate, the reduction in the hospitalization rate, the reduction in divorce rates, because you're decreasing the level of stress in, for those people, and it benefits the community to, to, to ensure that no one is left behind, no one has to, has to worry about their survival. And I see so many positive impacts of basic income. I wonder why, why there's such resistance to this concept so far. Federally, we can do it very fast because the first budget could actually include basic income. We don't need to negotiate with provinces, and the federal government is entirely free to undertake tax measures that will benefit the population. Why do you think the other 
NDP candidates have not embraced this idea. This is something that has been discussed at numerous political conventions um, between New Democrats. In fact, it's been discussed at liberal political conventions. Well, um, it's it's hard to understand. And from what I gathered, it comes from in some some part of misconception or misunderstanding on what it is. I mean, uh, at some point, I've been told that the program would cost 175 billion, which would be the case for a universal program, which is which I'm not advocating. So, if you're talking about what I'm advocating, is really a top up for those who are under the level of poverty. And we're talking about 30, 35 billion for which I've provided uh, a way to fund that program. Um, there is a debate in the left right now taking place that we should not go in that direction because it could be, it could be misused by liberals and conservatives in the future. There is one concern: if we have basic income, liberals and conservatives will slash programs in the future. We're saying you have basic income, you don't need social programs. There are some fears that it might lead to commodification of social services. I don't believe that. What do you think the impacts of basic income would be on provincial welfare programs? Well, uh, one thing I will ask provinces not to do is uh, is to change or to be freeloaders if you want, to change the level of social programs to say, well, you know what? We have a basic income now federally, so we'll slash social assistance by half because we can. I don't want them to, I really want the experiment to work well. I want for them to maintain the level of social services that they have. And if they want to use this as a freeloading device, eventually to, to, to send that, uh, that uh, to basically to use this to, to lower their own expenditures, there would be the possibility of that province not being, not being able to benefit from basic income. Because obviously, if one province decides to use it as a as a way to reduce their own expenditures on social assistance, then there is no reason that everybody else will will not do it. But then, wouldn't you hold be holding uh, low income Canadians kind of like as hostages in a tussle between provincial and federal jurisdictions? That will not be my fault. It will be. I want everybody to play fair ball on this, and I want to ensure that provinces will also play fair ball. If a province decides to do this, I will tell them you can't do that. I mean, if you, if, if this is to be working and if we are to, to tackle poverty in this manner, we all have to fight it together. And that will be their decision to move in that direction because they will know what the consequences might be. Yeah, but residents at the end of the day don't care which level of government is to blame. They just feel the brunt of the decisions. We 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 are supposed we are supposed to be grown ups in politics. I mean, let's let's stop playing those games. I mean, it's not a game of perception what people will be perceiving the federal government to be or the provincial government. The fact is, both levels of government have been unable to eliminate poverty so far. We have a chance to do it with basic income. I'll take the lead in this. It won't merely be a pilot program, which is basically what you're doing when you want to be seen as doing something without really doing it. I really want to move in that direction, but I want everybody to play fair ball and to be honest and to try to work for for the common good and for the good of, of, of our communities rather than playing political games. You write in your platform that um, it may mean a deficit, that your agenda mm-hmm. might lead you to run a deficit. The, the wording struck me as odd. Um, are you saying you will run a deficit or you plan not to run a deficit, but there may be some numbers there that don't exactly balance? I'm just saying that I'm not 
ideologically opposed to a deficit if it can be justified. Uh, I think back in 2015, we made the major mistake in saying that we'll have a balanced budget every single year. I do think that you have to balance the budget over an economic cycle. But if within the economic cycle there are circumstances that warrant uh, deficits, then you can do it. It's if if you are in a position, for example, with the deficit to invest it. We were I was never opposed to the idea of uh, of investing in infrastructure because that brings a rate of return for the economy in terms of productivity, in terms of opportunities for workers. Uh, but we need to do it. Well, and there are other circumstances in which you are going to invest and maybe you will borrow money to invest, but it will bring a rate of return to the economy and to the government at the same time. Um, so I do think that you need to ensure that the money that you are borrowing will be put to good use. Look at the liberals now. They went, they promised during the last election that they would go and have uh, 10 billion deficits every year. To invest in infrastructure up to 10 billion up to 10 billion yes and now they are at 28 billion deficit and very little investment in infrastructure to the point where they're looking at this infrastructure bank to bring some foreign capital to invest and that will be resulting in the loss of control of our infrastructure that's not like if you're asking anyone where did that 28 billion go it's it's, it's kind of hard to know and it's hard to actually decide if that that was a productive use of a deficit I do believe in deficits that that will bring about a rate of return, a positive impact on the economy and on productivity in Canada. And how low would you be ready to go? Uh, it's it's always on the case by case basis. It depends on once again on the use. I'm not going to go on a deficit just for the sake and the fun of having a deficit with having targets. It's, if it's justified on, at the time, then then we can do it. But but it, it's I cannot give you an answer now because it's really hypothetical. I mean, it's it, it depends if we're in major crisis or a great depression or if 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 well, if, if it's on the a, a great crisis or a major deficit, much like what the Conservatives balanced budget legislation. If we will remember that from a few years ago, which, which is just for a show because it never really has any impact. But yes, you know, su suspending that for a second. I it strikes me. I mean, your platform is uncosted, and if you are, were running an election with the platform that you have, you would certainly be attacked by your political opponents for not saying... Uh, well, it's funny that you're saying it's uncosted. I would say it's fairly well-costed. I told you basic income, which is the centerpiece, is between 30 and $35 billion. And we have our investments, which are about $9 billion a year for the green economy. Uh, we are costing everything else that's in there. And I will tell you where the revenues will be coming from as well, starting with the reform that we're putting forth. And I never said this might be the, the end of it. I said this is basically the first step that we're going to do. And what do you expect that final number to be? We will see at the end of the campaign. What do you think your biggest challenge will be in this race? I mean, I look at your competitors and you're being out fundraised and it looks like you're being out membership sold and you, Western Canada or English Canada doesn't seem to really uh, have a good idea of who you are. 
not like they do in Quebec for sure, where you've been doing the media rounds for the NDP for a while. Oh, that that changed. I, I recognize the challenge I had at the beginning. I was the least known candidate because I was from Quebec, yes, but also because I was the only one from the 2011 election. I mean, Charlie and Peter were from 2004, Nikki 2008. So I had to get myself known. My intention from but the get-go. Mr. Singh is... And Not even he, he, he uh, <laughs> I understand that, but he he, um, he is fairly well known, I would say, in Toronto, in Brampton, Mississauga, in Ontario. But the point is, uh, my, my intent was to get noticed in debates. And people, by and large, are telling me that I did very well in debates. I wanted to, to have original ideas that will be debated, that will create some, some uh, well-needed discussions and will be attractive. And by and large, that happened as well. My objective at this point of the race was to be seen, if not as the front runner, at least as a contender, somebody who has a chance to win. Look at the endorsements I got. Uh, I got very, very, very good endorsements from coast to coast to coast. Yes, in Quebec, but uh, Gene Crowder, Chris Charlton, very respected former MPs, Yvonne Gardin in New Brunswick, Howard Hampton, who led the party in Ontario. Ruth Ellen Brosseau. Ruth Ellen Brosseau in Quebec. Um, so... Uh, I, I was able to to recreate uh, a buzz around my candidacy that was not necessarily a communication buzz, but really to see who is ready, who will be helping us to 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 get where Jack was not able to get, just got close, but to take the next step, and I was able to, to do that. So I'm I'm really satisfied with the campaign so far, and uh, certainly I'm hopeful for the remaining six seven weeks of the campaign. Thank you very much. Thank you. That was Quebec NDP MP and leadership candidate Guy Caron. Next week, we'll bring you our interview with Ontario MP Charlie Angus. our show. As always, we'd love to hear from you. Please send me a note on Facebook or through Twitter at Althea Raj. You can subscribe to our show on iTunes or SoundCloud or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like this episode, share it and leave us a great review. <laughs> a big thank you this week to our associate producer, Zian Lam, and our technical producer, Stephanie Warner. Our executive producer is Andre Lau. I'm Althea Raj. Have a great day. Have a great day.